from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Our scripture reading from the Old Testament comes from Psalm 8. It can be found on page 466 of your Pew Bible. Let us listen for God's word to us today. Our Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babes and infants. You have founded a bulwark because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? Yet you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under their feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beast of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The word of the Lord. text Connie read for us this morning from Psalm 8, along with these two portions from the letter to the Hebrews, are lectionary text, part of that three-year cycle that guides the church's proclamation. We are oftentimes in sermon series where the preacher gets to pick the texts, and when you're in the lectionary, the text picks you. And it picks all of us today from Psalm 8 and now from the letter to the Hebrews, first in chapter 1 and then in chapter 2, page 204-205, if you're following along in the Pew Bible. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now God did not subject the coming world about which we are speaking to angels, but someone who has testified somewhere from Psalm 8, what are human beings that you are mindful of them or mortals that you care for them? You have made them for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned them with glory and honor, subjecting all things under their feet. 
Now in subjecting all things to them, God left nothing outside their control. As it is, we do not yet see everything in subjection to them, but we do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. For this reason, Jesus is not ashamed to call them, to call us brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, on Tuesday of this uh, past week, the New York Times ran an op-ed written by Thomas Friedman. Uh, the core of his piece reflects on the deep riff and the deep division within our national life. Uh, he writes this, There is a deep breakdown between us and between us and our institutions. We can't find common ground, he says, on which to respectfully disagree. The other side is the enemy. Uh, this article elevates something I think that we intuit or we have experienced or at least we have observed in our time, experienced or observed in a regular way, even on a daily basis, that we live in an age of us versus them. To be sure, much has been written uh, on this matter over the past two-plus decades as to how we ended up in this particular predicament. Much has been said about these things, but I think in this month's edition of The Atlantic, authors Amy Chua and Jed Rubenfeld, I think they put it succinctly. They wrote this, the causes of America's resurgent tribalism are many. They include seismic demographic change, which has led to predictions that whites will lose their majority status within a few decades, declining social mobility and a growing class divide, and media that reward expressions of outrage. All of this has contributed to a climate in which every group in America Minorities and whites, conservatives and liberals, the working class and elites, everyone feels under attack. Pitted against the others, not just for jobs and spoils, 
but for the right to define the nation's identity. I am struck by that last sentence, for who does have the right? Who does have the privilege to define the nation's identity? Who gets to decide our identity? I mean, to really appreciate this inquiry, I think, we have to acknowledge the fact that we are reaping the fruit of philosophical liberalism, which for the past century or so has undermined the ideas of essentialism and foundationalism. And I'm going to say something about those in just a moment. But starting with Plato and up until about the end of the 19th century in church, that's a really long time. For that period of time, religion and politics and the whole of society normalized and codified the dominant cultural and political forces of the day. They codified and they normalized those cultural and political forces' understanding of what true human existence actually looks like. They tried to answer the question for the world. What is the essence of humanness? What is essential in human identity. And until a little over a century ago, these dominant forces and cultural powers had definitive answers for that question. Whiteness was unquestionably normal. Protestantism was unquestionably normal. Western educational, economic, and political structures and institutions were unquestionably normal. Heterosexuality was unquestionably normal. Gender roles were unquestionably normal. Maleness was unquestionably normal. As an aside, it's not lost on me that I fit in most of these categories. And that which was deemed normal, that was codified, and that was promoted as essential to human identity. I'd be remiss if I didn't say that I believe the fruit of philosophical liberalism is not sour. The political and societal freedoms, empowerment, and inclusion that has incurred, especially in our nation over the years, that which still needs to occur and evolve in time, in my opinion, I think, only enunciates the accent of God's creativity. A creativity that by intent promotes a plurality of witness, a plurality of, of, of experience, a, a plurality of human expression that I sincerely believe, I believe this theologically, that is by God's very design, by God's intent, and I believe that plurality, and I believe that diversity brings glory to God because God created everything. Everything. Even so, we live in this post-foundational age. And to come to any sort of agreement on what is essential identity for our nation, let alone the entire planet, seems to be an impossible task. 
right? Because in all of our diversity, in all of our God-intended and God-designed plurality, in the welcomed deconstruction of what was normalized and then lorded over people who didn't fit all of those categories, is there actually something we can say that is foundational to human existence, that is foundational to human identity? Well, church, this morning, I believe that there is something to be said here. I think the scriptures prophetically and pastorally speak to this very question. I think they speak in such a way that promotes a, a particular essentialism, an essentialism that ought, I believe, shape our ethical lives that shapes how we interact with other human beings in every sphere of our existence, not just in our religious existence, but in our politics and in our economy, in the environment, in our social settings, in our schools, in every place. I believe this word that comes to us today speaks to every sphere of our lives when it pertains to this question of essential identity, essential humanness. For in our text, from Psalm 8, so worthwhile that the writer of Hebrews repeats it again. Psalm 8 speaks to this question and says this, what are human beings that you are mindful of them? Mortals that you care for them, yet you have made them a little lower than God. You have crowned them, says the writer, with glory and honor. We get cute and call it the three C's, right? The three C's, according to Psalm 8, every human being is created by God and every human being is cared for by God and every human being is crowned with glory and honor by God. Even the most heinous of sinners, even those who live and act like the Antichrist right before our eyes, even those who don't believe or reject the notion of the existence of God, still by God's gracious design, has put this imprint on every human being, says the psalmist. Every human being carries this essence. The notion of being crowned with glory and honor is a turn of phrase that, that means something like this, that God has a high opinion of what God creates God has a high opinion of what God creates, even those we have a low opinion of. And I have a list of those people. Maybe you do too. Ones that I have a, a low opinion of, the ones we hold in low regard, God attributes in scandal, attributes high esteem. High esteem. Don't leave today believing anything less than this, that you and I, and every human being on this planet is created, cared for, and crowned by God. You move to the book of Hebrews, the, the writer digs deep and begins to invite us to think about the work of Jesus at play in this psalm. And the, and the writer says that Jesus actually takes on this form, leaving his status above the angels for a human status. And he demonstrates God's love for the whole world, not just our corner of the world, but the whole world. And he lives and he dies and he's, he's raised for the world. And what is the outcome of this sacrificial act? I mean, 
Theologically speaking, we could name several, uh, several things, several components in terms of the efficacy of Jesus' life, death, and his resurrection. What are the outcomes of that for human history, but not just for human history, but for your life and, and my life? And, and Hebrews 2.11 invites us to think of one of those outcomes, and they put it like this. All of us, the writer says, the entire human race are siblings to Christ. Did you catch that in Hebrews 2? Five, or sorry, two, eleven, that we are all siblings to Christ. We are Christ's brothers and sisters. We are all children of God. This is essential for the writer of Hebrews. It is an essential outcome of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is foundational to who we are. It is our essence. Siblings to Christ Himself. The table that is set before us on this World Communion Sunday is a table that is set in many places of worship across this globe. And make no mistake, it is a family table. It's not a denominational table. It's not a political table in terms of affiliations. It's not a table that is based on zip code or your theological convictions. It's based on who God is. It's a foretaste of God's kingdom. It's a picture of what God intends not just to be done in this sanctuary, but what God intends for us to do out in the world, that in sameness and in distinction, we come forward together. Because we are one family, brothers and sisters in the household of God. And one of the things we do, and this is going to sound so simple and it may be in some ways trite, but one of the things that we do to demonstrate something different to the world is that in our distinction and in our sameness, we keep showing up at the table. We actually keep coming. We keep choosing each other, even in our differences. Even when we don't see things eye to eye, we keep choosing each other. I heard from somebody this week who was sharing a moment of dissonance in a, in a group they're a part of, a group that they love in the life of this church. And the difference between that group, I think, and many groups that we, facilitate, that we are, are part of out in the world, I think a group like that, the difference is, is that despite their, the, the antagonism maybe, or despite the dissonance that they experience over a controversial issue, after that experience, you know what they're going to do next week? They're going to come back together. And you know what they're going to do today? They're going to celebrate communion as one family. That is the difference between the church and the world. We choose each other because God has chosen all of us to be the church. Brothers and sisters to Christ, our congregation, I believe, I believe this in these fractured times has a vocational obligation as well as a vocational opportunity to lean into this essential nature, to claim it as a foundational truth of our identity as ones created, cared for, and crowned by God, and to share this message with our city, to share it with our partners in Brazil and Cuba and Haiti, Jamaica and Kenya and Clarkston and, and in the entire world. I think we have a vocational obligation to be sent into God's mission 
to dismantle all systems and strongholds where this essence and this foundation is not being upheld. And in its place, by God's divine providence, what we do is we build altars in the world. We build tables in the world to demonstrate what God intends for everybody, that all people are welcome to Christ's table and all people are to be received as Christ's siblings. I'll close with this. There is something that's sort of like a duh about this sermon for this church. Let's just speak very frankly. Like many of you drive past three, four, five, ten different churches to come here. And part of what gets you in the room is because what I have just talked about is in the DNA of this church, right? I mean, I see some heads nod. It's in the DNA of this church, and and we choose to be part of this community, one, to respond to God's call, but two, because there is something about all the things I just said that resonates with us on a deep, guttural level. Here is the challenge for us. It's one thing to affirm all of this in this space. It's one thing to do that, and we should do it each and every week. We do it each and every week in worship. Throughout our morning, all people are welcome in this church. But it's another thing to carry out this identity in the world, to let it shape your relationships, to let it shape how you view other people, to let it shape what you post on social media, to let it shape how you think about your perceived enemy, to let it shape your politics, to let it shape how you vote, to let it shape how you spend money, to let it shape how you spend time. It's one thing to do it in these walls, and we should, but it's something entirely different to carry out this essential identity in the world. That's what Jesus did. The essence of the gospel is that Jesus left the comfort of heaven to come to the world. Not in a four-wall structure, but in the world to bear witness, to claim, and to promote this essential identity to the point that he died for it. He died for it. And God, vindicating that death, raised him from the dead to prove once and for all that the way to be truly human is to embrace the fact that we are created, cared for, and crowned by God. And not just us, but every human being. May that truth shape our lives for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world. Amen.
The good news of the gospel is that, that loaves do abound, that, that we are not a people of scarcity, we're a people of abundance, and we have something to share of what God has said to each and every one of us through God's word, which is, is that there is something essential to us, that we are created, cared for, and crowned by God. Let us bear witness to that reality outside of these walls in our lives and for the life of the world. And may the peace of God, which goes beyond all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. May his peace live inside of you this day and every day ahead. Amen. Oh.